1: You matter. On this episode of the IO Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Angela Myers. Angela founded the global movement Choose to Matter in 2014 with a singular mission to help individuals recognize their value and potential contribution to change both their own lives and the world. The nonprofit organization grew out of the impassioned response to a TED Talk she gave on the power of two simple words, You Matter. An educator for 30 years, Angela shared her message of mattering not only with students and teachers, but with businesses and organizations of all kinds. Her work with industries is finding new ways to ignite the genius of employees and successfully addressing a $15 trillion employee engagement problem. We talk about Angela's journey growing up in Shell Rock, Iowa, to going to med school at the University of Iowa, to pivoting to education, to becoming an entrepreneur and change maker. It was her time in rural Iowa that shaped her, quote, invisible small town rules, which can guide powerful community engagement. We discuss how acknowledging and attending to those in our community can have a positive, transformative impact. I appreciated Angela's perspective of mattering as a call to action, as the kind of person we bring to the world every day. We discussed how common sense is not common practice and so much more regarding the ways we might better engage in all phases of our lives. It was an honor having Angela on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode and know that you matter. Angela, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And you had me at Iowa (laughs) because it is indeed heaven. So I didn't really care what the topic was. I am just so (laughs) passionate and proud to be an Iowa girl at my heart always. So I am an author, um, a speaker, a professional speaker, a uh i don't know educator parent, um and all around uh, disruptor yeah in whatever industry i'm in
1: <laughs> excellent right and uh going back to just uh from an iowa perspective where did you grow yeah. up
0: i grew up in a really small town in northeast iowa called shellrock okay. we're famous for the fourth of july so the closest if you don't know shellrock waverly do you know yep. waverly Wartburg?
1: And then yep, if they don't yep. know
0: Waverly Wartburg, then you and I, Cedar Falls, Waterloo, it's like all within like 45 minutes. But yeah, I grew up, yeah, I always say to to people, I grew up in a cornfield in Iowa, in the middle of a cornfield. They're like, literally, I'm like, well, kind of, there's nothing really, <laughs> we have one quick trip and one stop sign. That's it.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you, uh, you went to the University of Iowa for undergrad. I did. I what did. What drew you to Iowa? Or so, at the University
0: of Iowa. Yeah, so those before they had like AP classes. So a group of us that were really like passionate and pretty good at math and science, we actually went to Wartburg for a portion of our senior year to do what would be now AP classes. And it was a long time ago. Right. And so I think at that time, um, if you were a girl and you were in science or math, there wasn't like really pathways that explored much other. So I'm like, okay, I'll be a doctor. I love learning and I specifically love the brain. And so that's that's what drew me to Iowa was it's medical program. And then um, all, all the way through to my senior year, uh, right before MCATs, uh, I had an incredible professor that I was TAing from And I was working four jobs to put myself through college. And all of them were with children and families in the community. And I'd come and tell him all about it. And he's like, so tell me about what you're most excited about being a doctor. What kind of doctor do you want to be? And I was like, well, I haven't really thought of that. I don't really think about that. And he's like, exactly. You're going to be a terrible doctor. You need to go back to school and be a teacher. And so he helped me navigate that field. But I never lost my, I don't have any regrets of um, quitting med school, going back. Um, And I'm grateful because it has kept my passion for science, specifically neurobiology, in my practice as an educator, as a leader.
1: That's great. And uh, also then you, I you you went on to get a master's in education leadership,
0: yeah, and a minor in neurobiology, neuroscience, so I kept that going.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that's a fascinating mix, and yeah. just kind of jumping ahead uh, more more to kind of where you're at now as an entrepreneur and a disruptor yeah. and kind of focused on human-centered leadership. Yeah. Do you mind telling me kind of how these things all came together for you?
0: Absolutely, and whether you've been in Iowa for a few months or you were grown and raised there, you know, that community is everything. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the foundation of my, my beliefs as not just an educator, a writer and a leader, but as a human being were embedded in my DNA. So I call this the invisible small town rules. Like when you live in a small town, everybody matters. You never ever say the word just, I'm just a farmer. I'm just a volunteer fire, because you're probably all of those things. You're a volunteer fireman, you're a farmer, you're the mayor of the town. And I don't know, the head of, you know, a church group and you work at a quick trip (laughs) part-time. So like every single person chips in and does what's needed and you never underestimate the role and power of another human being's contribution. So I was taught and modeled from very early on that no matter who's in your presence and no matter where they're at you always attend to them. You always acknowledge them. You're walking across the bridge. You're standing in the line at the, at the store, you tip your hat, you wave, you say hello. And everybody is your family in a small town. And so even if you don't interact with them on a daily business, they're a significant part of, of who you are and what you stand for. And there was like this looming kind of, um, folklore that if you didn't do those basic expectations as a community member as a person that has the privilege to be in that community you would find yourself um, broken down in the middle of winter 20 below zero 20 inches, you know 20 feet of snow and the person you didn't say hi to that morning is the only one that will save you and they'll what and they'll just go on by <laughs> and you'll die in a snowfield <laughs>
1: In, in, and this this notion of yeah. mattering and the importance yeah. of understanding that one matters is yep. has been a, a a focal part of your yeah. work. Can absolutely. you can you talk a little bit more about that and how could kind of your your insights and and why that is so important for for people in general, but maybe uh, maybe we're yeah. focused on students and 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 younger people that they matter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. So many people think mattering is a statement of inspiration, not a call to action. So we are called to act not only on behalf of ourselves, but on the kind of person we bring to the world every day. And we we get um, unequivocally, whether we follow it or not, that there are basic human essential needs. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need air. And that if we didn't have those things that we might survive for a small amount of time, but we would be a very different person entering the world. And so when you look at mattering from a scientific perspective, from biology and not ideology, it is also an essential need. Going back to the small town rules that people equally to enter the world as their fullest self need to be seen, need to be acknowledged, need to be heard, need to be valued and understand their value, so they never underestimate their role as a contributor and they need to know they're essential so i know that if something happened in our small town that every single person every single person would immediately rush to that person's house so i use the example a lot of times when i'm speaking to leaders um parkersburg is a small town in iowa seven miles south of where I grew up. So um, lots of family there, lots of friends there. And I remember, um, during like it was like a triple threat happened to this small town where they had um, a mass tragedy in the community where their beloved um, football coach was murdered by a student, and the family, the brother of that student who had mental um, illness, still remained in the community accepted, honored, loved no matter what. Um, and then we had massive flooding. And then right after that, they were hit by an E5 or an F5, whichever's worse, tornado that literally demolished the town. And so there was this conversation about, well, maybe there will be no Parkersburg on the map. Like this community doesn't matter. Like to rebuild it would be ridiculous. We'll just divide it. Like a few of you go to Shower Rock, a few of you go to Janesville, a few of you go. And the small town in us, came from everywhere and said heck with that rolled up their sleeves and rebuilt this town you would never know of its devastation that is every small town in iowa every community that I have been a part of for the past 50 some years and that at its core is the embodiment of mattering where people understand not only that they're expected to contribute but they're honored for that contribution and the smallest amount is never underestimated.
1: Thank you. Th- and thinking about that that mattering from from your your experience and leadership perspective. Yeah. What what gets in the way from from us as individuals knowing that we matter or maybe yep. recognizing that others matter?
0: So all of it is common sense which automatically is assumed would be translated into common practice and commonplace. So you can show data after data from employee engagement data out of queue that's been around for decades, that 90% or 80 to 90% of the American workforce, millions of people go to work every day and disengage. They, they fully right. disengage their, everything from apathy to agony and this is not an emotional issue it's an economic issue it costs businesses and the world economy trillions and when you dig down into what they found is that the number one reason people don't bring their full selves to work or the world is because they don't feel like they matter and then you break that down so i took that research as a scientist and i wanted to understand exactly where your question came from when does that happen when in our lives do, and I started my career as an educator with five-year-olds, and if you're around a five-year-old for more than three minutes, not only do you know they matter, if you don't recognize that they matter, um, they'll remind you, like, hey, Hey, Mrs. Hey, Hey, look at me. So they demand their essential needs, just like they don't have any social construct to say, like, I have to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom right now. And it could be in the middle of a church service. And (laughs) when their essential need comes up, it's the same with mattering when they need to be noticed, when they need to be acknowledged, it is as DNA instinctual as their need for food and water and shelter and air. So two things happened almost at the same time. I left early childhood. In my education career, I taught every grade level from preschool to graduate school. So when I moved out of five, six, seven-year-olds and I started moving up the grade levels, literally up the grade levels, every grade level, and was teaching undergrad and graduate at the university, at Drake University, I started noticing this really, this is before the workforce data. I started noticing this disturbing trend that, Oh my God, where did these fierce, courageous, confident, convicted human beings that showed up every day, not only for me, but for each other, where did they go? They started putting their heads down and not smiling and not contributing and hiding and holding in anything unless they thought it was gonna be approved. Like, what What? What do you think? Well, I don't know what you want me to think. Well, what would you do? Well, I don't know, what would you want me to do? Well how would i communicate well how how long do you want that paper how many paragraphs and i'm like something is going on and school started happening like in the workforce where it was a get to do like the proudest day of your life you're five years old you can't even breathe you've been sleeping in your backpack for 14 (laughs) weeks waiting for the moment you get to go to school and then all of a sudden a get to do becomes a have to do and i assume that's the same with work the first day of work is exciting and honoring and motivating and you run to work and then all of a sudden work isn't that so that's the gap that i've been researching for two decades when does a get to do for humanity become a have to do become a burden become agony and you either resort to completely apathetic behavior or you disruptively disengage and i was stunned at how early it happened. So my initial research was um, a project with South by Southwest. And we asked a half a million kids 500,000 kids that represented um, every demographic, every every state, um, one question, what would make you run to school? And when they came back universally, no matter what grade level, no matter what zip code, no matter what color or race or creed, we want to matter. And we want to do work that matters. Okay, well, what does that look like? And then we broke it down. And when they responded, and now think back to the small town in the Iowa part, I want someone to smile at me. I want someone to say my name. I want somebody to notice when I walk in a room. I want someone to remember something about me, not what I do, like my birthday or what I like or, or what I'm good at. I want somebody to believe in me, to trust me, to challenge me. So I'm like, Holy shit. And we, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's
1: great. I love it. I love the passion.
0: (laughs) And I'm just like, when did that show up? Eight years old. Eight years old. We started getting messages that we don't matter. We're not good enough. It doesn't matter what we contribute. It doesn't matter how much we give of ourselves. Only this portion is going to be recognized or valued. And then we recreated that study with the largest employee engagement network about three years later and asked the same question. And this is the biology part of it. If you put those lists up side by side, they're exactly the same, almost in the same order, different words, but exactly the same. If you look at the Gallup poll and all the other things, that's exactly what people are saying. I am not bringing my full self to work. I'm not giving all I can give to this organization, to this company, to this boss, to this team, because no one says my name. No one smiles at me. No one cares if I don't show up. No one acknowledges the effort I put in. No one challenges me. No one helps me. This is DNA. This is not ideology. This is straightforward biology. If we get that, it helps us position a framework to make mattering a practice and integrate it in the DNA of the organization and in the DNA of our lives, just like we do lunch breaks and bathroom breaks and all the other essential needs we take care of.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that, uh, the, both the, the framing and the insight there. Uh, a, a bunch of threads that I'd love to uh, yeah. start to start to pull on if you, you don't mind. But yeah. first we were talking about at the like the employee disengagement. Right, and I know different different studies that I've seen uh, recently, and I'm I I apologize because painting with broad strokes, but that we are pushing seventy to seventy five percent disengagement in organizations, and we also have uh, twenty percent to a quarter of the workforce feeling like they're burned out. And my uh, kind of flip take on that is, it feels like the, those those that aren't disengaged are burning out, and the right. rest of the organization is disengaged. And to your point, how expensive that is for, oh, for organizations?
0: Trillions. It, not just in the current workforce and their expectation for productivity and output, but it also has major ramifications for recruitment, for talent acquisition, for competitiveness between industries and attrition and long-term commitment, especially when jobs are changing. When we started, you know, there were those awards, like as an educator for, I've been in this for 30 years, I've been in this for 35 years, I, I committed to this career, the average college graduate will go through probably six to 10 or 11 entire career industry changes. And that's norm. So how do you Keep talent? How do you recruit talent? How do you sustain and nurture talent? Like, that is the question of the ages. Um, and all of those stats that you shared, whichever report, Mackenzie, yeah. um, Pew, or just look in the eyes of a worker going into work. Like, you don't mm-hmm. need deep research to look at kids' eyes and, and workers' eyes and humans' eyes right now. Their souls are absolutely um, out there at risk. And so when you look at that, whatever data you choose to look at, it's incontrovertible. And the economic, the emotional, but also the economic um, ramifications or perils of that, it is stunning to me that still, this is all pre-pandemic also. (laughs) This isn't adding trauma um, and disruption of the pandemic. That's a whole nother set of really disturbing um, figures. It's that this, that this isn't our number one priority for educational institutions, for organizations. And it seems like the same ones at the top get it. If you look at what the common thread is between the Zappos, the Starbucks, the um, Googles, or all those ones that are talked about all the time, the common thread is all of their effort and energy goes into um, the heart and happiness of their employees which trickles down to everything else. And this is like, I mean, Zappos is a $270 billion company and they they don't have a million ad- agenda items. They have one, like, we're going to help you deliver happiness. <laughs> if you can't right, do that, right. we'll pay you to leave. Like, that's what it should be. It's so far down on the agenda of my community of education. It is heart-wrenching, heartbreaking.
1: Thank you. Yeah, and related to that too is... Um, and and I apologize because I might be putting some my labels on here. No, no, but go ahead. The the notion too uh how might we get better at helping people realize in themselves and for organizations to cultivate yeah. the notion of authentic self, right? right? And being able to bring your authentic self to what you're doing, because right. what what you're describing in the workforce too, I feel like there's a lot of um, energy that is you said that positive thing the similar to to the kid can't can't wait to break out those new school supplies right. sleeping in the backpack
0: absolutely so excited
1: about that first day right. and it doesn't take long before that's ground out of them and not right. and then not wanting to give extra effort because right. they don't feel valued and it, it like this lack of fit i think is is a huge absolutely uh, issue slash opportunity
0: so i everything that i do is based in science i know that's controversial anymore like i follow the science but (laughs) you follow the science of human behavior and to me it's it's logical like to not use scientific data about human behavior is stunning to me because we have it and we have it in droves and and it doesn't require like um a psychologist and a neurobiologist and a giant research team like it can be as simple as asking people what matters to them asking what would i mean you can word it however you want but basically what would make you run to work what makes you like this place what drew you to this place and what would keep you if you've got an offer from you know another industry what would keep you here and i think employers would be stunned that it isn't the the money of course that's good but it isn't the money it isn't the rewards it's not the surface level perks it all comes down to our dna biological need not desire need to be seen heard valued appreciated and needed the deepest driver of human behavior is to hear the words i need you you are indispensable to this organization when we feel dispensable that we can be replaced then we're not going to put in the effort and a lot of this i think you asked like what's the challenge the challenge is to me this is a global pandemic i have said often that this is before the pandemic but the greatest um global pandemic we face is our battle with insignificance, and that's individual and organizational. And so if we don't understand what it takes to feel significant to not only each other, but to the world, to to a greater mission or a greater good and break down those conditions, we, we can't create it. And because this is invisible, when you have a population or, so imagine if 80% of the population wasn't getting nourished, what we would enable to fix that essential need. What if 80% of the population didn't have access to clean water? What would we enable and excavate to make sure that essential need? Because we understand without food, without water, Our people won't survive. What are we activating when 80% of the human beings that we interact with every single day don't understand that they are essential and that they matter? And a huge part of that 80% are kids eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old. And the result is not just loss of productivity, loss of energy, the result is loss of life. Bottom line, loss of life.
1: Thank you, and I um, I'm feeling a, a a parallel here, and and so it, it feel free to uh, poke holes in in, in what I'm yeah. saying. But with what you're saying, especially where it seemed like around eight years old, yep. right? That 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 it's almost this cliff, right? Yep. <laughs> that it it feels like maybe the sense of purpose is getting ground out. Right. I've seen studies related to creativity that have some similar trends where 100%. Uh, like yeah like almost like six-year-olds are almost the they're they're naturally creative right? and through through a lot of institutions uh, the the way we run education institutions being one of them we tend to grind out that creative side Right. And then we desperately ask for our employees to be creative when, right. when an organization is stuck. We
0: spend billions of dollars yeah. in intervention programs that don't work, whether it's bullying intervention, whether it's suicide intervention, whether it is drug intervention. Think of how much the D.A.R.E. program alone. I'm not saying that mental I'm, I'm lo- talking about neurological issues and physical issues and mental illness aside. Yeah, that. You can eradicate insignificance if you apply the science with fidelity. And that's the key. It doesn't take a lot to apply the science. In fact, the framework that I share is 40 seconds a day, <laughs> 40 seconds a day, and has the power to eradicate at the DNA level the, the doubts that human beings have, that they matter and are seen and heard and valued. So it's based on what neuroscientists refer to as primacy and recency. And so when you look at our day and how our brain processes, both cognitively, experientially, and emotionally, all of the stimuli from the day, the only thing it remembers is how I felt when I began it and how I feel when I'm ending it. So that can be, so if you take a meeting or if I take a class at a 48 hour period with students, the minutes that matter most, it's actually seconds based on Malcolm Gladwell and others blink, so unconscious. Scientists, neuroscientists call this the hijacking of the amygdala, (laughs) which is the the center (laughs) of of all of this in your brain and your limbic system. And it takes two two to 20 seconds to get it at the beginning, and two to 20 seconds to secure it at the end. And if we just focused on that, so think about the hospitality industry, how much it's changed. The effort and energy are put into the lobby and the atmosphere and environment in the lobby, how people are greeted, how people are treated, how people are recognized and welcomed. And the rooms are actually getting crappier and smaller <laughs> they're becoming more basic more basic more basic because they understand the middle is not remem- remarkable you don't care as long as it's a clean bed and a clean shower and some you know pretty decent towels you're okay but it is the experience of staying at that hotel or staying at that chain or staying at that wherever is based on how you are greeted how you were treated and how you felt leaving Will you be missed? Will they welcome you back? Will you feel like you're a VIP, even if it's your first night there? And what people don't recognize is you don't have to be Hilton to do that. You don't have to be Disney World to do that. The reason they can do that is because they are using this science at the molecular level, literally from the sound to the ambience, to the lighting, to the colors they choose to the smells that when you enter. So the hijacking happens before you're even in the parking lot. (laughs) And you don't even know it's happening. All you know is like, God, I really like that place. Oh, I really had a good day. But if you say at 1045, even at Disney World, what happened at 1045, your brain doesn't remember it. It remembers we process everything through its emotional impact. And the brain doesn't differentiate between positive or negative. So we, we have that ability.
1: My, uh, my day job, so to speak, right. Yeah. Is, is been in design and innovation and when ah. it, and when it comes to experience design, yeah, that exactly what you're saying is that, uh, and there, there's, there's research that I've, I've similar to what you're talking about is yeah. the, the remembering self is yep. more powerful than the experiencing self exactly. and.
0: Exactly.
1: Are you familiar with the colonoscopy study? I wish I could remember the author on no, the study. No, 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 no. So oh, I mean tell if, me more
0: about was, <laughs> that. That's exciting. Opposite <laughs> that end from the brain, but I never right, <laughs> right. And,
1: and literally a pain in the ass, right? Yeah, totally. Uh they the the study essentially what they separated out was uh, being more cognizant about the patient's the close of procedure, walking Absolutely. them through how this ends even though the procedure itself took longer, the right. patients described a more positive, oh. they remembered it more, but right. less negatively. And That's it was right. all about designing kind of the, the close of the experience.
0: Absolutely. Think of how dental offices and experiences have evolved. It was like child, it should have been like child torture, going to the dentist, when i was five and six years old i remember it like it was brutal like you fought every every way you were terrified if you had a cavity and even the little toothbrush at the end didn't make up for the trauma and the idea that and so most of the studies done in this area of mattering based on you know this are done in neonatal wards they're done with um the the perception of patients and doctors and nurses. So it all connects. This this is so tied to our our biology, but you can track it too. So let's say they have a tough time recruiting people to go get a colonoscopy, to keep people coming back at regular times, to not push it off. People are not, my children are not stressed about going to the dentist. It's an enjoyable experience. Still today, I'm traumatized by what happened to me at five and what the dentist represents, but they have picked this up every industry. And more importantly, I think more specifically, every human being holds in the power of their hands. The most important gift that we can give to another person is to acknowledge their presence, to take a moment and stop and recognize that the person sitting in front of you, before their title, before their role, before what they're going to give you, what you're going to get from it. They're a human being. And at our core, human beings need the exact same thing. So if you want to forward a relationship, if you want the day to go smoother, if you want to make your day soar, brighten someone else's day. Look them in the eye. Say hello. It's so ridiculously simple. And it costs nothing which is right. I think why it's not being applied. Common sense does not equal common practice and commonplace.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that that framing of common sense not equaling common yep. practice. And I'm just thinking about our, our general social interactions. If we meet right. somebody for the first time, like at a cocktail party, but yep. right, it's the first thing we, we usually what do they do?
0: Right, exactly, right. not who it, they it's are. It's not
1: recognizing in another, yep. the presence of another human there Absolutely. for you.
0: We're trying to sort
1: through if I need to spend time talking to this person.
0: That's right. That's right. Our only agenda with each other should be to honor, at the most basic level, is to honor one another's humanity. When we restore that dignity back into people and they know that they can count on it, that's why I go to the same hotel chain. That's why I fly, I mean, you know at least why I try, why we build habits around certain spaces, certain places, is because what those brands have done, what those spaces and places have done, is that for the most part, we can rely that our experience won't be as horrific as it could be. And anyone who goes a little above and beyond, like I used JetBlue as an example, like it shouldn't be extraordinary that a flight attendant goes off script. But we make like videos of it and we make like right. you know viral stories. Why? Because another human in a specific role, like went off script and treated us like we're not just, you know, a herd of cattle. Like it shouldn't be um the story of the week. I hate the idea of random acts of kindness. I hate that idea. And here's what I mean by that: kindness shouldn't be random, <laughs> it should yep. be a perpetual part of what makes you human. That doesn't mean you don't have bad days, that doesn't mean you don't struggle, but there's no excuse to not be kind and we shouldn't have a day where we focus on okay today you can be human and then the other 362 days. And so I, I again circle back to a small town. And whether you're in a giant city like New York or you're in social media in a world of millions, this is Dunbar's rule. Everybody Is existing in a small town it's a global little small town if you're in New York it's your neighborhood this hundred to hundred and fifty people. That you interact with for the majority of your day, and if you don't understand these unwritten invisible rules, not only do you lose the Community loses. Thank
1: you. If you don't mind, I want to switch gears just a little bit to yeah. talk about your, so kind of your entrepreneurial journey, yeah. kind of creating your own organization, what kind of, what were your insights and, or, you know, if you don't mind walking me through you, you kind of creating your, your own business?
0: Yeah. So I had 100%, well, first I had hundred percent intention to be some sort of doctor. Um, just because I liked math and science. And then when that wasn't the right pathway, and I started really orienting toward my calling. Um, You know, when people say you follow your passion, what they, they don't understand is that the root word of passion means to suffer. It means to endure. And my definition between a hobby and passion is when doing it gets hard, and no one supports it, no one agrees, or it becomes really, really difficult. And you don't quit. <laughs> In fact, the thought of not doing it is akin to not breathing for truly passionate people. That's what education was for me. So nobody, you know, going home and announcing um, after making it into medical school and being successful and on the dean's list and all the things you're supposed to do as a perfect student, saying, I'm gonna quit and i'm and this is a long time ago a long time ago um when it wasn't as you know every day that women went into fields like that um that i said oh i'm gonna go back i'm gonna quit school i got to go back to college another year and i'm gonna be a teacher and i didn't have a lot of support in fact no one supported that and at that point it didn't matter to me because being around kids and being around families and educating Um, lit my soul on fire and 35 years later still does. So finding that was not a straightforward path. It wasn't my decision. So committing to that, enduring through that, trying out different roles as an educator in different forms from a coach to um, a college professor to, you know, a a trainer. Um, Part of my research was on literacy and linguistics, cultural literacy and linguistics, understanding how language mediated identity around different communities, which is basically social media, before social media was that, Um, which messages carried, why did the language and the narrative matter, stories mattering, all of that. Um, My research turned into like a big award. And so part of that award um, for the university is you had to go and speak. I'd never spoken publicly before. I mean, as a teacher, yes, but there were eight. (laughs) And so I never planned ever in any realm to be a professional speaker. Like I would have laughed at you, but one event led to another event, led to another event. And at that time I was um, teaching graduate school and I was getting subs for my class because I was just going to this place to speak and that place to speak. And so then um, a publisher approached me and said, would you turn your research into a book? And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. And so I took a sabbatical and eight books later, I've never gone back. So I quit my PhD program, dropped out, and that was my plan and my path. But I'm open to, because I know that I matter. I know that I have something that other people need. And my thought was, well, if they need this now, then I'll do, you know, I'll match what I can do to what people are asking for and needing. And then I'll go back to my path which would be to teach at the university forever and die there. And then it just led to another thing. And then one speaking engagement left to another and and then social media happened and that changed everything because social media allowed me to take my journey of learning, my journey of writing, my journey of entrepreneurship and write about those lessons on my blog. And that connected me to other communities because I understood how communities worked online because they're just like a small town. So I followed those small town rules. <laughs> and then I started writing for Social Media Explorer, Social Media Examiner, a couple of leadership blogs. Twitter broke out this thing called Twitter chats that were a really big deal. So I joined all these, you know, communities and, and contributed like a good community member. I wasn't just a visitor, I was a resident. And that changed everything because the people that were resonating with my lessons in entrepreneurship my lessons in leadership my ideas about education were not my initial client they weren't educators Um, i would say that my ideas were about a decade too early in terms of being embraced and accepted the book that i wrote a decade ago sold more copies last year than it did when I published it. And it's not even with the publisher anymore, which is strange. So I started doing um, events and having conversations. And I found at that time, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I thought I was just a crazy teacher that didn't fit in. Like my heart was there, but my body and brain did not operate in this system, which I thought was crazy. And I always felt this cognitive dissonance or this dissonance because I'm like, I'm meant to do this from my soul, but I don't fit here. No one gets me. Everybody thinks I'm crazy and I'm just alone and I'm hiding, literally hiding in my classroom. Not telling anybody in my world what I'm doing, but I'm blogging all about it. And then I found my my community, these weird people called entrepreneurs who took stake in crazy ideas and did things that nobody agreed with. And, um, I'm just like, oh my God, I'm a rebel. And I found my group and that, that still remains my group today. Even though I serve education at my soul, it is not my, um, it's not the people that I would go to that would, that would push me, that would get me. And I'm okay with that
1: thank you and i'm in, in some way i'm thinking you know it's in what you're talking about is like you, said, you the a common you know kind of through line is the as you said you know kind of this the small town or community yeah. view and and the, the principles that guide that yep. uh, apply in many settings and so in some ways i'm thinking i'm i'm thinking about a young angela uh <laughs> in you know in rural iowa in in yep. many ways like some of these These things still hold true, but I don't think there's any way you could probably have told your younger self what you're doing, you're going to be doing, and have it sound believable.
0: Oh my gosh, absolutely nothing, because I was the perfect (laughs) child, the perfect student, the the perfect, you know, all the way. Like if I I remember getting my first like a B plus in um in college in a really hard medical like psychopath pathophysiology, it was ridiculous. And I was devastated, Absolutely, like the thought of risking, the thought of taking a chance, the thought of putting out something imperfect to the world, blogging changed everything. This community being online as a connected human being changed everything because they didn't expect perfect. They expected brave. And that is a big mission of mine is to teach kids how to be courageous and not um, and not fight for conformity or comfortability, and it is a daily endeavor. And I think that is a rule uh, a a rule that every entrepreneur lives by. We have made peace with uncomfortability. We have made peace with ambiguity, and we've made peace with perfection because perfection um, strangled me and held me back for decades. And once you recognize um, and, and Seth Godin had a huge, huge influence in my life, like his idea of ship it, like yeah, stop yeah. trying to make it perfect, ship it, damn it, like just do yeah. it. And I'm grateful to be surrounded by people that think like that because you were never taught anything like that in school. You were, I mean, it, the school rules are opposite small town rules and world rules. They're They're not just like dissimilar, they're opposite. So think about like don't talk to strangers (laughs) don't share who you are with anybody so like it's it's every single thing that we are wired to do in our DNA is. um, Is taken out of us if we stick with the education system, especially my I worry we talk about at risk learners, it is the valedictorians the straight A students the perfect you know specimen and graduate of the education institution is the riskiest human being to be in the world
1: with with what you're saying too i'm just thinking about you know because we're we're of a a similar age and how much uh kind of interconnectedness global competition right things that we've seen in our our lifetime and the rate of change compared to right like our parents generation our grandparents Right, uh, and while they they mean well, right, just right. assuming positive intent, right. But the at least kind of from from where I grew up, it was go go to school, do well in school, get a good yep. job, yep. right. And and it was almost transactional, right. And totally. if you did this, you would Linear. you would get this. Get and married, yeah.
0: Engaged for exactly a year and a half. Get married exactly a year and <laughs> a half. Have child one exactly a year and a half. And look at the result of that. At the the majority of people are age i would say seventy percent of my friends are divorced me myself included yeah so and i fully believe that if i would have focused what my children are doing right now finding what their role is in the world how they can contribute significantly to the world in a field or an industry that matters not just get the first job out of college which is hard as a parent because you want mm-hmm. them employed um but it i would 10 times rather have them take this time in relationships in commitments to um to their their full selves deciding what that's going to be because the commitment is enduring and beautiful and it doesn't come to you at 18 day 2 of your 18th birthday that's so incredible. i i think because this generation or at least my children's generation is waiting longer to get married is waiting longer to form this white picket life is taking an unusual path. And then that sets the body of the world that controls it, um, that had a different experience in a conniption because they don't know, they can't control that. They can't define that. And so I give kids a lot of credit today. Um, Parents will say, well, they're lacking and they're lazy. I don't think that they're taking time that we should have taken and our path might've been different
1: right uh i yeah and i want to step back for a second i just wanted to acknowledge too i really appreciated when you talked about uh passion right and at the root is really suffering and i know something that resonated with me so years ago i was watching like an old joseph campbell lecture Uh and he was breaking down the word compassion which really means suffering with and that's right how that form that form of empathy, right? Yeah. And and we know like we you know like Brene Brown has the the video yeah. on sympathy yep. versus Same empathy. Yeah. But yeah, the true like true empathy, but the idea that compassion, that that suffering with and seeing you know some of like some of these these gaps where we we think that maybe the children are being lazy and we're we're not really focusing on maybe the, the, the good outcomes that we want or even yeah. the, the root cause problems, it's just right. these surface level things that don't match somebody else's mental model.
0: Right, and, so and it go back a lot of friction. to small town again. So I yeah. keep circling back, it's in every strand of thought and research that we cover. So think of growing up in a small town or in your neighborhood, what did we do? Our entire um, in existence, was about framing our identity within the presence of other people we were not isolated we played we imagined we built forts we rode bikes we 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 made pretend stores we did and family was a huge part of that and 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 i don't think it's just about being in a small town and having that we had a childhood i wasn't scheduled for 57 events since I was three years old, I didn't go to roller skating. And then, I mean, I took piano and I took dance, but there was not this pressure, like there wasn't like triple A tap class, you know, like I danced, I wore a horrible leotard. I laughed and quit. And then two years later, picked up something else. There wasn't this, what we are doing to young people right now, parents get, so they they're in school for eight hours with every second of their day. There are schools that don't allow kids to talk at lunch. There are schools that limit the walking through the hallways and behavior, so everything is about compliance and silence and just sitting there and getting it. And then we they go home, and from the second they get home, there's no free time, there's no time for imagination or grappling or dreaming big. No, we've got to go to six different sports simultaneously, and then on the weekend do this, and, and we think we're doing good for our kids. We've got to let up and leave them alone and let them bloom. And I hear parents all the time, well, my kid loves sports. My kid, well, does your kid have anything to compare it to? Does your child know what it's like to just go out in the backyard and play with the neighbors and not be directed every second? So I I think that parents are doing it because they wanna give, I mean, from a deep good intention, they wanna give their child experiences that they didn't have, not recognizing that the experiences that we didn't have were a huge part of forming our resilience, our imaginations, our adaptability, our flexibility, and our empathy and compassion. Because if we're saying, compete in this, compete in that, compete in that, even though it's a team sport, There, there's still isn't that there's this sense of entitlement, this sense of uh, oneness. Where when you grow up in a small town, you're a part of something, and that's what builds our significance. The other elements that we're chasing, that success is fleeting. It's fleeting. You get an injury, guess what? your entire identity goes down the tube. You get a B minus, your entire essence. But when you are contributing to a community, to something bigger than yourself, it doesn't matter if you break your leg or it doesn't matter if one day, because the next day you will be missed and the next day you'll come back stronger and you don't have to be bribed or it's really frightening to look at what we're doing. We're putting kids as young as five in test prep to get into pre- kindergarten, to get into preschool, for God's sakes. It is insanity. It's insanity. We've gone mad. We really have.
1: Angela, I want to uh, <laughs> jump. In. No, this is great. And, <laughs> and I feel like this conversation, because there's so many different with this could yeah. go on for, for quite some time. I really, really appreciate it. Cause there's, yeah, so many different, different threads too, from, from my work. But I wanted to talk about maybe your, um, in, in the work that you've done and like in, and you've been and I, I appreciate how open you've been about like some of the changes and how vulnerable you know you were you were feeling uh but the one of the things i like to talk to guests is uh, as they approach their their work or their life when they're feeling stuck like if they feel stuck what are their techniques for getting unstuck so i'm curious for you do you ever feel stuck in some way and what what are some of your personal? techniques for getting unstuck?
0: Oh, every single day, every single day. If you wait for a time in your life where you will have motivation or find motivation to get unstuck, you will remain stuck, period. Like you cannot wait for motivation. So my antidote is action always. So whatever action it is, it doesn't have to be a grand action. Getting up some days, going to the gym some days is an action. So one of the um, ladies that I really love, her name is Mel Robbins, and she has this um, rule called the five second rule. And it's based on, again, biology. And the biology is that our brains are so driven to make us not take action. Because action takes effort. It takes energy. It takes courage. It takes strength. And we don't really like to work that hard as as biological beings. So you have about five seconds, the span of five seconds before you decide to take an action, big or small, before your brain talked you out of it. Oh, let's just sleep in today. Let's just be tired today. And that's the difference, you know, like, you can call it whatever you want, you can call it atomic habits, you can call it the four hour work week. So you can take all these gurus and it comes down to five seconds. So every day, you decide an action that you're going to take, it's uncompromising, unless you're like completely bedridden and sick and, you know, physical, you take an action. And 99% of the time, you are not going to feel like taking the action, you have got to want the outcome more than you want the moment. So like, I did a lot of coaching and teaching and of writing courses, like, how did you write eight books? How did you write nine books? Well, I didn't set out to write a book, what I did is I committed to writing every day. 99% of what I wrote and still write today is absolute crap. <laughs> Just crap. I look at some of my writer's books. I'm like, who was I thinking? But I don't set the goal. I'm going to write nine books or I'm going to write a book. I set the goal that I'm going to write every day and I'm committed to that action. So what when when you look at building that kind of What do I want to say? Not confidence, what commitment? It's about commitment. Pick an action. It doesn't have to be grand. So I would rather see people walk to the end of their street and back every day than create a goal that says, I'm going to run a marathon because they're never going to do it. But I'm telling you, if you walk every day to your mailbox and back, one of those days you're going to walk a little further to your mailbox. Another day, you're going to surprise you. You might do it twice. If you don't Hold yourself to the expectation that you will act upon something every day. And I think where entrepreneurs um, cut across that is the actions they take are often or most often uncomfortable. So I will do X today, even though I'm not going to be good at it, even though I don't know the outcome of it, even though I'll most likely fail but I'm going to commit. And that's what, that's what, what courage is, is, you know, courage is the action to do something. The opposite of courage is not cowardness. The opposite of courage is comfortability. So you have to make a, a stance on where you lie with your tolerance of uncomfortability. And what I've done is I built that muscle. So my tolerance of uncomfortability is absolutely increasing every day because I intentionally do something that is uncomfortable for me, hard for me every single day. And so you can't get stuck because you're in action.
1: Are you are you familiar with the Mark Twain phrase follow the frog?
0: no oh my god i'm loving this no tell (laughs) me it's it's one
1: that my my wife uses but it's it's basically if there's a tough thing in front of you that day that's the frog right big okay you you know swallow the frog and and then it's if there if there's two swallow the biggest one first
0: that's so true (laughs) so there's a sign at my gym that says what doesn't challenge you what what challenges you if you something like what doesn't challenge you doesn't change you so if you want change then you have to commit to challenge so you cannot do the same thing every single day and not challenge yourself so every single day i've got this voice in my head from my gym lady it's like are you choosing hard today you showed up i mean you woke up and put your shoes on and you committed to walking to the mailbox why wouldn't you commit to walking a little bit further And if you do it incrementally like that, you don't have to leap into like the entrepreneur zone where you're like, I'm gonna send a rocket ship to space and five years from now. I mean, that's a rare individual that can be in that much, Um, but find a very, very small goal and every day commit to it. Don't waver and know that you are never, ever, ever gonna feel motivated to do anything that challenges you. You're fighting biology and you just can't fight it. It's just how we're wired. So you have to consciously override your own brain and your own body.
1: Thank you. And when you were talking about writing, it reminded me of uh, one of my professors. I still think yeah. this was great advice that he had. It was just about doing research and 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 building your expertise. But his yeah. advice was write five pages a day on on a topic right before you know it you will be an expert but it wasn't i'm going to be an expert on x
0: right exactly but
1: that process you you start to find out what you're interested in
0: yeah absolutely absolutely so oh my gosh i've enjoyed this it brought me back to my roots so like all of every single thing we talked about can be tied to a small town (laughs) and to the the beauty of iowa i wish everybody Got that experience, you know, to understand what true community is and what in what's really funny. I went back for the fourth of July this year and pretty much nothing has changed. You know how the world is like this crazy big busy world. Nope, not in Shell Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, didn't happen. It was kind of surreal, like like to go back in time. Like my mom didn't even know her internet password. Like she didn't even have working internet, like. It's not I mean ugh, it's crazy like there's still one stop sign and there's still one quick trip and you know a few new buildings and a few new things, but the sense of the town didn't change and there's something kind of beautiful about that.
1: Angela if you don't mind one last topic I just wanted to cover yeah, was absolutely. usually uh, and there's been so much it, it I feel I feel sheepish even saying this because there's yeah. been a lot of advice built into what you're talking about. I close with guests by asking about advice. And sometimes it is either good advice that you received uh, or uh, I steal from Austin Kleon. His books feel like an artist. He says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Either, both, uh,
1: if like good advice that you've received or you wish you would have received in your journey.
0: Well, this will not shock you. But And it's not advice. It's yeah. a reminder of truth is that you matter. And there's a period after that. You matter, period. There's not an if or when or only or because of. Your worth is, is unequivocal right there. And it's up to you on whether you're going to embrace that truth and use the gift that you are to find a way to be of significance to something or someone. You can chase success. You can chase accolades. You can chase numbers and percentages. But at the end of the day, and this is a Harvard study that was the foundation of my research, at the end of life, that was the longest longitudinal study in human life or human behavior. And people on their deathbeds, as they followed them, I think they followed them for 89 plus years. The thing that they didn't ask was, was I loved because they could point to places in their life. They didn't have a doubt that they were loved by another human being. They had a doubt on if my life mattered. I don't want you to wait until end of life to look back and say, did I matter? Did my life matter? You should know that right now. And if you've got to fight your way back to your five-year-old self where you didn't question that, you showed up every day and you acted as if You mattered until somebody paid attention to that. And that isn't driven, again, by ego. That is driven by DNA. That is in your DNA. It is a part of who you are. And it is the deepest universal truth that if we embraced, um, we would not only see the world differently, we would be a part of that world in a different way.
1: Angela, thank you so much. You're so
0: welcome.
1: I I loved having you on the the podcast. This was an honor.
0: I feel I'm loved talking with you. And if there's anything that I can do to support you, your community, your listeners, um, once an Iowa girl, always an Iowa girl. (laughs)